Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. begin this morning with a question. Can you think of a time when you were acutely aware of your own foreignness? Uh, while we were in divinity school together, uh, one of my best friends, fiance, uh, studied abroad in a remote indigenous village in Peru, and halfway through her trip, she contracted an intestinal parasite from eating an infected guinea pig, and uh, you know, she was hoping it was just a bad case of food poisoning. She tried to wait it out, but only got sicker. So by day four or five, she was so dehydrated from the vomiting that she started hallucinating. And uh, her host family decided it was time to take her to the local witch doctor. And so when she came to, she was buck naked in a big tub in the middle of the village square with all the tribe watching, watching on as uh, the shaman was shouting incantations, attempting to exercise an evil spirit from her. Unfortunately, she regained consciousness long enough to demand that they take her to the nearest hospital. Um, that might be a more extreme example than what came to mind for you when I asked if you've ever felt like a foreigner. Uh, but I suspect that we've all found ourselves in those moments, those social or cultural settings at some point in life where we just felt like a total fish out of water. And I hope that's true for you because as we have seen over, over the last two weeks, especially together in our study through the book of Acts this year, uh, we've observed that this world in which we live is not a place where you and I as adopted children of God for those of you who are, are supposed to feel most at home. That if we are truly born again, as Jesus calls us to be in John 3, that means we are now citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20, which makes us strangers and exiles here on earth in this foreign land. It's Hebrews 11.13. And yet we have also been commissioned now in this foreign world in which we're exiles and strangers, to be ambassadors, to represent that better world to which we are one day headed so as to reach this broken one in which we now reside. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The problem is that sometimes that means that we're called to try and reach folks, even folks here in our own backyards, right across the street from us, who when it comes to worldview issues, they seem like they might as well be speaking a totally foreign language, shamans and evil spirits and eating guinea pigs. That the, the cultural chasm sometimes feels that wide between a worldly worldview and a Christian one. You imagine trying to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the God-man who lived the perfect life, that you and I couldn't and died the death that we deserve in our place on the cross to take our sin upon himself 
and then rose from the dead to give us new eternal life in him. Imagine trying to take and explain and then actually persuade of that gospel a society where some folks don't even believe in any God. They're just here to have fun. And others think that as long as you just try and be a good person, surely it's all going to work out the end. And then the rest of the folks who are left, if they worship at all, they worship false gods. It may be plenty religious, but it's definitely not the religion of the Bible. Well, I bring that up because I think that's exactly the situation in which you and I find ourselves this morning. And as it just so happens, that was exactly the situation that the Apostle Paul found himself in here in Acts chapter 17 where we are going to pick up his story this morning in verse 16. If you want to begin turning there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one of those this morning. You can pop out right now and head to the info bar. We'll get you a Bible. But it's a good thing that Paul already walked this road ahead of us preaching to a pagan culture because he's going to offer us 16, and count them, 16 pieces of advice here we're doing just that for for reaching a pagan culture with the good news of Jesus. And if you took one look at your bulletin this morning and laughed and thought to yourself, there's no way that Will is going to be able to cover all 16 of these points in 45 minutes, then congratulations. You know me better than I do. Uh, So God willing, we will make it through the first eight of Paul's points this morning, and then we'll finish the last eight next week. But Please note uh, about the title before we even dive into the text. I use the word pagan here because it can refer in the dictionary to those who observe a polytheistic religion such as the ancient Romans and Greeks, specifically of Paul's day, or it can simply refer to a person who is not a Christian, especially, sometimes in a derogatory sense, an irreligious or hedonistic person. I think that aptly describes not only Paul's day, but our own. But in either case, our calling today is the same as it was for Paul in his day, and that is to reach a thoroughly pagan culture with the love and the truth of Christ. So how do we do that? Well, let's find out. I would invite you to stand with me once more as you're able to, out of respect for the reading of God's word, from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. We'll, we'll read the whole passage both this week and next week because it's just so good. Uh, and then we'll study half of it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that is for Silas and Timothy, again, context here. Uh, you might remember from last week where we left off, Paul had to flee from the city of Berea because the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica had tracked him down there and they were trying to put an end to his ministry once and for all. He narrowly escapes off to Athens, where he's now waiting for Silas and Timothy to come rejoin him on this second missionary journey. That's our context. And while he's waiting, we hear his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean And Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word this morning. We submit ourselves under its authority now. Father, would you use your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to open our eyes to see new wonders, mercies, and glories of Jesus, to open our ears to hear the good news of what he's done for us. And open our lives that we might be changed by it. We want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. We want to be transformed by the power of your word and your spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right. If we are even going to have a chance of reaching a pagan world with the hope of the gospel, whether it be Athens of 2,000 years ago or America of today, then we have got to do 16 things, eight this morning, eight next week. Number one, first we must be upset. Verse 16, the only reason that Paul has any ministry at all to these Athenians is because he got upset, provoked. 
is the word. Deeply distressed is another translation. The Greek word is paroxuno, from which we get our word paroxysm, as in a seizure or spasm, medical term. It's the same word used frequently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God's reaction to Israel's idolatry. They were constantly provoking God to anger and to jealous love. And that's the thing. Paul's distress here is twofold. First, he is righteously angered for God's glory. Paul knows that the whole reason any of us is here in the first place on earth is to bring God glory. And yet as he walks around Athens, he sees that glory being robbed, stripped, and given to these lifeless statues instead. And so he's outraged, but this word provoked connotes more than just anger. I think upset really is a good translation because as much as Paul is impassioned for God's glory, he is also heartbroken for these lost Athenians. He's heartbroken. Imagine with me if you traveled back in time to 7.30 a.m., September 11th, 2001. And you were standing just outside the entrance to the World Trade Center buildings as employees were clocking in for what they imagined would be just another day of work. Imagine the sense of urgency you would feel trying to convince them not to enter knowing what you now know. And imagine the heartbreak that you would feel every time one of them looked at you like you were crazy, talking about time machines, and then just walked right past you anyway. For the Christian, this kind of hypothetical isn't hyperbolic because the people passing Paul in the marketplace that day to turn into the Parthenon or the Erechtheion or any one of the more than 20 pagan temples that Athens was famous for they were in no less danger spiritually, eternally, than the folks entering the Twin Towers on 9-11. So too, the folks today, passing you and I on their way to the mall to worship at the altar of greed, on their way to the Cardinals game to worship at the altar of sports entertainment, or maybe just on their way home to worship at the altar of family, Tim Keller rightly identifies idolatry as a good thing becoming the ultimate thing. And John Calvin rightly diagnosed our heart's condition as idol factories. Even a cursory glance around our society reveals the truth that of an almost innumerable list of lesser created things that you and I have deified to a position intended only for our creator, the idol of work, the idol of love, the idol of sex, the idol of comfort, the idol of likes, the idol of self at the root of all of it. But God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Disobedience is disrespectful to him and it's dangerous to us. So when you and I, as believers, see someone living for something other than God, it ought to provoke us, it ought to upset us, even enough to speak out and say something, just as Paul does here. Number two, we must be responsive. Paul does speak up in verse 17, 
We hear he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace with the Greeks. In order to evangelize effectively, we must recognize our specific audience and then respond accordingly. Because how you respond, how you reason with one person may not work with another person. So the text differentiates here between Paul's evangelism to the Jews and the synagogues and the Gentiles in the marketplace. Where and how he went about it was different. His sermon here at the end of chapter 17 to a predominantly pagan crowd is going to be very different from the sermons that we heard him preach back at the beginning of chapter 17 to predominantly Jewish crowds in Thessalonica and Berea because Paul was a master of what's called contextualization, contextualizing the gospel. And what is his context here? His crowd, verse 18, it's the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers initially. Now, Context. The Epicureans said, follow your gut. Pleasure is what's most important in life. Enjoy life. The Stoics, on the other hand, said, follow your head. Virtue is most important. Endure life. Jesus says, follow me. I am king. I can offer you eternal life. See, Paul's got a tough job here trying to reach such different camps of unbelievers. Had the Epicureans, they were basically uh, agnostic hedonists. They were indifferent to the gods, all the Greco-Roman gods, because they viewed the gods as indifferent to us. And so they reasoned that the best use of our time here on earth is simply to make the most of it. YOLO. You only live once. You better live it up. The Stoics, on the other hand, viewed life's purpose as the pursuit of virtue. They were less agnostic. They believed in a transcendent cosmic force of source, kind of Star Warsian, uh, sort of deistic, pantheistic. But the important thing was, for them was living in conformity to this life force by being virtuous, wise, just, courageous, temperate. And then finally in verse, 30, in verse 22, these philosophers are going to take Paul and introduce him to a wider audience with the common Athenian people as well, who were just your run-of-the-mill polytheist. You know, they believed in the sun god who got out in his chariot every morning to ride across the sky, the fertility goddess who determined whether or not you got pregnant, etc. And so people would worship at their various temples, take their various offerings to try and appease the gods, even manipulate the gods into doing their own bidding. Basically, it was the religion of most Americans today. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This idea, I know God is probably too busy for me, but if I just live ethically enough to appease him and at least keep him from getting too disappointed in me, then hopefully God will come through when I really need him. That's what most of your neighbors believe. They may call themselves Christians because they don't really know the nomenclature, they don't know the difference, but that's what they believe. And so imagine trying to share the gospel with all three of those, those camps of people. Share the gospel with Hugh Hefner and Jordan Peterson and your next-door neighbor all at the same time. That's a tall task, but Paul is up to the challenge here, as he would later write. He says, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. Not save all. Paul won't save them all here, but he will reach some because Paul knew how to recognize different listeners, and then reason with each of them accordingly. Number three, 
we must be undeterred. Paul is initially met here with not one, but two different types of poor responses to his gospel message. In verse 18, we hear some mocked, others misunderstood. Mockery and misunderstanding. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he just seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So some just call him names. This guy's a loony. He's full of tall tales. Others were just confused. Apparently they thought he was a fellow polytheist, actually, who worshipped gods they'd never heard of, Jesus and Anastasis. He, he, Paul's going on and on about Jesus, this Jesus guy, and then Anastasis. It's the Greek word for resurrection. They mistook it for a second god that Paul was endorsing, and yet Paul was undeterred by both their mockery and their misunderstanding. Brothers and sisters, we should expect to be mocked and to be misunderstood by our surrounding pagan, non-Christian culture. I, I celebrate America this weekend just as much as anybody does, but we need to be real about the fact America is not a Christian nation anymore. We can debate whether or not it once was, but the sooner we come to grips with that, the better, more effective we're going to be at actually reaching our culture. God's word says that God's wisdom is considered foolishness by the world. Do you actually believe? Not just believe. You've centered your entire life around some guy who lived 2,000 years ago who allegedly rose from the dead. You actually believe in this whole spirit world, angels and demons? Tell me, do you also believe in fairies and ghosts and Santa and the Easter Bunny? Mockery. You're telling me you actually believe in some invisible, all-powerful God who's supposedly good and calling the shots around here, but this is the best he can do? He hasn't gotten around to curing cancer yet or dementia or sudden infant death syndrome, just didn't have time for that, but he expects me to wake up early on Sundays to go worship him? I don't think so. Misunderstanding, both of how God works in the world as well as what God's ultimate purpose for the world is. We should expect it. We should expect to be mocked, to be misunderstood in this world where we live as strangers and exiles. And we should remain, therefore, undeterred when we encounter it. Number four, we should be ready. We should be ready to pounce at the opportunity to share the gospel despite mockery and misunderstanding. We hear that these Greeks took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, tell us more. Are they just putting him on? Are they just looking for a good laugh at Paul's expense here? Maybe. It makes no difference to Paul. There's no such thing as a bad opportunity to talk about Jesus for him. And so he just jumps at the chance. And so he follows them to the Areopagus, literally the hill of Ares. That was the Greek god of war. Uh, who's, who corresponded to the Roman god Mars, hence the nickname Mars Hill. There was a temple there on the hill to uh, the god Ares, Mars. But Paul must be all the more ready and enthusiastic about their invitation here because this was the very center of public life in ancient Athens. We don't really have a town square anymore in our modern cities. 
place where everyone sort of converges and, and interacts with one another. Life has become so fragmented, compartmentalized, commodified. You can live your whole life without ever stepping foot outside your house anymore. We've all become painfully aware of that in recent years. But I might argue that the closest thing that we have to a public square like this these days is social media. For all of its problems and pitfalls, I think that this may actually be the strongest argument for Christians being involved on social media and for using it wisely, of course. But where else do you have the opportunity to share the gospel with dozens, maybe hundreds, of unbelievers, depending on Zuckerberg's algorithms, how many people he wants to put you in front of that day, all at once, like Paul here. I don't know about you. You know, maybe I just need to hang out in way bigger groups with way more non-Christians, but social media, for me, seems like the best outlet that actually affords me that, that platform, that opportunity to reach a wide and widely pagan, non-believing audience. Brothers and sisters, we should take it. We should seize it, that opportunity. I don't, I don't want to press this point too hard, but I will just offer it up for you this morning for your own self-examination. If you are on social media, and if you have been completely silent for the past 10 days now in the wake of the Supreme Court's historic decision for life on June 24th, and I'll just ask you, what, what, are, what are you really doing on social media? How, how are you using it? Because I can promise that many of your non-Christian friends haven't been silent. I can also promise that you're not moving the needle by sharing pictures. Thank you. I can promise you're not moving the needle by sharing pictures of your cute new kitty or whatever you ate for dinner last night. The world doesn't need your likes, your friendship. It needs the gospel. And many of us have forsaken the latter in the name of the former, friendship. Such that when God tosses us a softball, you know, one of my friends raging against this decision, or perhaps distraught by this judicial decision, might click comment and then decide, you know what, I'll just private message her instead. Pull up messages, start typing, and then decide, you know what, I'll just pray for her instead. There's nothing wrong with prayer. But when God tossed Paul a softball, a ready-made opportunity to share the gospel with people who clearly need to hear it, Paul didn't stay home and prayed. He went. A field of dreams evangelism doesn't work anymore. If you build it, they will come. Maybe once upon a time in this country, just build bigger, cooler church buildings, fill them with more fun, relevant programs, and unbelievers will just flock to us. No, they won't. Not anymore. They'll stay home and get better, freer entertainment at home. We've got to go to them. And when we do, and God provides us these opportunities to testify to the amazing news of what he's done for us and the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus, we've got to take it. We've got to seize that opportunity. But at the same time, number five, we must be realistic. We should be ready, but we should also be realistic. Paul pounces, on, Paul pounces on the opportunity here to share the gospel, despite the fact that he knew, verse 21, that all the Athenians 
and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Paul knew full well that the only reason most of them invited him to speak was that they were bored and constantly looking for something, anything new to fill their time with. Speaking of social media, that's not a perfect description. I'm bored. Well, I wonder what's new. Scroll, 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 scroll. And so I don't think Paul is operating under any illusion here when he accepts their invitation. I'm not sure he was expecting some mass revival on the Areopagus. Paul is realistic. He knows that many of them are mockers, misunderstanders, but here's the thing. He also knows that it's not his job to judge the relative likelihood of his hearers coming to true saving faith and then determine whether or not it's worth his time and his possible embarrassment before going. Paul's job is simply to be obedient and to preach the gospel and to let God take care of the rest. Because Paul also knew that while the Athenians wanted some new idea, what they needed was new life. They needed new hearts transformed by the power of the gospel. And so despite Paul's realism and all the evidence to the contrary suggesting that his words were just going to fall on deaf ears, Paul nevertheless was undeterred. He knew that with God all things are possible. Matthew 19. And so he went. Number six, we must be winsome. Winsome means attractive, engaging, winning, to be so charming as to win one over. You just look at how Paul opens his speech here in verse 22. He says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. He doesn't say, hey, dummies, listen up. No, he says, I can tell that you all are sincerely very religious. That might be an insult today, actually, to open that way. But back then it was a compliment to to, to be considered religious, devout, pious. And so Paul opens by, frankly, buttering them up a little bit. He pours it on. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar, don't you? Commentator Daryl Bach notes here, Despite being aggravated by all the idolatry he sees around him, Paul manages to share the gospel with a winsome spirit. The Paul of Romans 1, who rails against the sad state of society, is still able to love and connect with that society here in Acts 17. Sometimes we Christians are so mad at the state of our own society that all that comes through is our anger and not the love that we are to have for our neighbors. So Bach says both message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that, that every single one of us in this room was, some some of you may still be today, but, but every single one of us was an unbeliever at some point in our life, separated from God in our sin. And let me just ask you, let's make this real practical this morning, personal. What was it that won you over? Ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit has to be the one to win our hearts, change our hearts. But let me ask you, who in your life did God use to get through to you? Show of hands, how many of you came to faith through the ministry of an angry soapbox preacher with a megaphone? 
How about through the ministry of a stern, disapproving Sunday school teacher? How about it? How many of you were converted by someone's angry religious rants on social media? Okay, seeing no hands, let's try flipping it now. How many of you had your heart softened and opened up to new life in Christ because of a kind, caring Sunday school teacher or pastor? Raise your hand, actually. Okay, keep them up. How about uh, a loving, patient parent? How about a sweet, sympathetic friend? See, our own lived testimonies of faith should be all the evidence we need for the importance of our tone in sharing the gospel. You know, Keller, Tim Keller points out that for most of the last 300 years, since the Enlightenment, skeptics were mostly concerned with the question of whether or not Christianity was true. That was the driving question in apologetics. But in the last 20 years or so, the bigger question has now become whether or not Christianity is good. Because most, most people these days think truth's all relative anyway. Right? You've got your truth, I've got mine. So they, they want to know if our truth is even good truth. Is it even truth worth wanting to believe in? And I think the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? If we Christians, if we're a bunch of jerks, you know, if, if that's the kind of people your truth produces, then they're not going to want to touch Jesus with a 10-foot pole, are they? But if we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, if we are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled, who's not going to want that? Who's not going to be attracted to that? Number seven, we must be inquisitive. Paul continues here in verse 23 by describing how I passed along exploring your city of Athens for the first time here as a new visitor, and I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription. And so we hear that despite being upset as he walks through the city, there's a sense in which he's getting more and more angry and heartbroken, and yet... He didn't walk through the marketplace with a sledgehammer in hand, smashing their idols off the merchant's tables as he went. He didn't picket and protest outside their temples. He actually went inside. He observed. He, he asked questions. He was curious. Excuse me. I noticed this ceremonial bowl here at the entrance to the temple. What do your priests use that for? Hi, I couldn't, I couldn't help but notice this inscription on this altar here. Could you tell me more about this unknown God? No, you can't because he's unknown to you. I guess that makes sense. All right, silly question. Right, but, but even the silly questions, God can use even silly bad questions to start good gospel conversations. I think some of us are so afraid of embarrassing ourselves or offending someone else by being curious, by striking up a conversation. Right? And we buy into these lies that, you know, these, the, the things you don't talk about in, in polite company, you don't want to ruffle feathers, and religion is toward the top of the list. It's not biblical. Most people love the chance to talk about themselves and what they believe in. Just ask a question, get them going, as long as we're showing a genuine interest like Paul here in their world. Again, people don't, we all know the, the, the phrase, right? People don't care what you know until what? 
They know that you care. So even if you're inquiring with an ulterior motive in mind, even if they may not realize it, you're really, in fact, on, on a fact-finding mission here, doing you know, recon for, for good conversation starters, open doors for sharing about Jesus. I think the truth remains. We want to be inquisitive, curious. Many of us shy away from conversations about faith because we're so afraid we won't have all the right answers to others' questions. What if instead we started by focusing on asking the right questions? Stop worrying about our answers and just start with a good question to try and draw others out and, and, and bring up these, these conversation starters that might open the door for gospel ministry, make a connection with them. And that's the last for this morning, making a connection is number eight, we must be cross-cultural. Christians must be cross-cultural missionaries. Because not, not only does Paul inquire about the Athenians' culture here, he then looks to build bridges between it, their culture, their worldview, and his own. For opportunities that are going to allow him to then translate the gospel into concepts and ideas that are going to best resonate with the Athenians based on where they're coming from, what they're familiar with. That's what Paul is going to do next week. Next week in verses 24 through 34, we'll pick up and we will exposit his sermon proper where he's going to take all of this research he's done as he's walked through the city and had these conversations personally, one-on-one, -on -one, probably already shared the gospel who knows how many times, but it's all prepared him for this, this bigger mass sermon to, to the crowd. And he's going to take it, all this research on the Greek religious pantheon and praxis, and he's going to turn it into a relevant, engaging gospel presentation and we're, what we're going to see next week, interestingly, and we see it really here in verses 23, uh, the second half of 23 and in verse 28, is that Paul doesn't quote scripture at all here, the whole passage on the Areopagus. Instead, he referenced, because th these people don't know the Bible. They're not familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They're pagans. They're Greeks. And so why would he quote you know, the same scripture that he does when he's in the synagogues with the Jews that's authoritative for them. No, instead, he references, he alludes to scripture. I mean, we're going to get to that next week. He's very biblical. He's going he's to allude to scripture and teach the biblical gospel and biblical principles, truth, propositions, but what he specifically, explicitly references here instead is, an inscription, an inscription on one of their pagan altars, and then he quotes from two pagan philosophers, Epimenides and Eratus. Again, what's the application for you and I today? I wonder if our evangelism to our pagan culture might be even more effective if we did the same. We took some of these principles. If we crossed cultures and we started with what was familiar and resonated with the people that we're trying to reach. As some of your own poets have said, in this world it's just us. You know it's not the same as it was. I believe that was your poet Harry Styles. 
What do you think he's singing about there? Conversation starter. Our scars can destroy us even after the physical wounds have healed, but if we survive them, they can transform us. Here's what I think your poet Batman was talking about when he said that. Drake, God's will. I mean, you could just go down the list, all the cultural conversation starters. This is cross-cultural evangelism, and it requires us to engage in our culture, not to fear and shun it. You know, we shun sin, and we don't engage in our culture at the expense of our holiness. We also realize that even the darkest of cultures, and listen, Christians can lament the rapid secularization of America all we want, but we are still nowhere near the darkest of cultures out there. And even then, we can still catch these glimpses of God's grace and truth and beauty and light, even in the darkest of cultures. And so you chew the meat and you spit out the bones. And next week, Paul is going to get truly cross-cultural as he introduces the Athenians to the culture of the cross. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with one final bonus must of evangelism, and we'll probably conclude next week the same way. We always need to bring it back to this one, and that is we must be enamored. We need to be enamored with Jesus. We need to be in love with our Savior. That's the whole reason that Paul does any of this. I mean, the only reason that Paul is halfway around the, the known world at that time, on the edges of, you know, the, the empire, talking with these total strangers, risking his life, getting beaten up and thrown in prison, beaten up again, and walking 50 miles a day. The only reason he's doing any of this, and the only reason he's upset about their sin, engaging with different people groups, undeterred when he's scorned, ready to take any possible opportunity, the only reason he's realistic, winsome, inquisitive, cross-cultural, is that he's so enamored with Jesus. And truthfully, you know, we could spend, I could spend not just a morning, not just a second Sunday next week, uh, we, we could hold a 13-week apologetic Sunday school class covering in depth every possible how-to practical tip for evangelism. And I'm not saying there's not merit in that. We've done that in the past, and we'll probably do it again sometime in the future here at West Hills. But frankly, all of those how-tos combined aren't worth the one singular, all-important why of evangelism, and that is love for Jesus. That's, that's game, set, and match. Because frankly, if you don't love Jesus, you won't really care about the tips or use them anyway. And if you do love Jesus... You won't really need him because you're going to be so passionate about him and about telling others about him that you're just going to have plenty of opportunities to learn from your own mistakes, you know, trial by error and figure it out as you go. Refine the how-to tips that work best for you. You know, we've all got our own kind of personality when it comes to evangelism anyway. There's no, you know, cookie cutter one size fits all. And it's just like anything, you know, you can go to school for four years to train for something, but I, if, if, if you're working for me, I'd rather train you on, on site for four weeks, right? Just do it. Just do the job. That's how, you, that's how you learn. You want to learn how to be a good evangelist? Go do it. Go share the gospel. But the only way you're going to do it, the only reason you're going to do it is if you're so, your heart is so filled with love for Christ that it overflows to others. 
May that be true of us, church. That's my prayer for us here at West Hills. May we love Jesus so much that we love introducing others to him and to his love for them as well.